Happy Palm Sunday. We are taking a break from Exodus. Feels like we're in the thick of the Ten Commandments. It's been a lot. It's been a lot to digest. And we said, you know what? Let's take three weeks to just celebrate this Holy Week, to celebrate Palm Sunday today and the triumphant entry into the city. Uh, and we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. We're going to look at a story that directly follows the triumphant entry and celebrate Palm Sunday today. And then we'll have Good Friday, which we would love to see you here for Good Friday for our worship night. Uh, and then Easter Sunday. And then we're even going to spend one extra week celebrating the season. We're going to have, uh, we're going to look at the Ascension the week after uh, Easter. So three weeks to give us a little bit of a break from Exodus and celebrate uh, this season. So we'll be in John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. The text will be on the screen. Uh, in the Gospel of John, there is this building anticipation uh, for when Christ is going to complete his work. Uh, there's this phrasing that uh, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. There's this building anticipation for the hour to come as you read the Gospel of John. And then he rides into the city on Palm Sunday. And he is celebrated like a king. The people chant, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is shades of, of, the, of, of a messianic king who is coming in to save us. And they were expecting this uh, this political revolution that Jesus was going to breed, not bring, not realizing that he was actually coming to save them from their sins. And there's this joyous time as Jesus triumphantly enters into the city, treating him like a king. And then directly after that story, we get this story right here, which only shows up in, in the Gospel of John. And we're going to see as we walk through this how this uh, is a celebration of the ultimate work of Christ. And really a celebration of the gospel. And we get to really look at this and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And then following that, there's kind of two, two costs that Jesus gives to his people. That if he's giving up his life, this is what he expects in return. So we're just going to take a moment and celebrate that. And celebrate the good news of the gospel in our lives as we walk through this. We're going to be starting in verse 20. I'll read it. I'll pray. And then we'll walk through this together. In verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be Glorified, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. And thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would help us receive your word this morning. That you'd open our ears and our hearts to receive it. And that we would celebrate and worship who you are with glad and generous hearts. And we would respond 
in faith and in worship and repentance and delighting in who you are as the God who saves. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so the story follows right after, okay? Jesus rides into the city like a king. Verse 19 into verse 20, okay? I don't know exactly when this story happens after the triumphant entry, but this is the next story, and it's significant. Verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, the word for Greeks there in the original Greek text is Hellenes. So Greeks is what the ESV chooses because we're not really familiar with that term Hellenists. But the Hellenists were not just Greeks. They were just Greco-Roman background. They were non-Jewish Gentiles who were very much in Greco-Roman culture. And it says that they're in town for uh, the feast, to worship at the feast, which means from the context is that they seem to be, as the biblical New Testament category would call them, God-fearers. These are non-Jewish Gentiles that have abandoned Greco-Roman religion and the gods of Greco-Romanism and have seen God as the, the God of the Jews as the one true God, but they're not Jewish. They're outsiders. But if they're here to worship at the feast, like they, they absolutely seem like God-fearers. They seem like the people that actually have abandoned their former ways and trust this is the one true God. And they no doubt have heard of Jesus. Jesus is a celebrity in the land at this point. By the time he goes to the cross, everyone knows who Jesus is in the land of Israel. And he came in like a king, people chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. These Greeks probably either would have been there to see that, or they certainly would have heard about it, because the whole city is abuzz at the arrival of Jesus, expecting what is this great prophet going to do? And like many others, they want to see Jesus. In verse 21, it says, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So they, they want to see Jesus. But you can tell from the text, they, they can't. There's some type of barrier that, that keeps them. They, they, they're going to Philip, one of his followers, to see if they can have access to Jesus. Now, it's very possible the reason they can't is because at this moment, Jesus might be teaching in one of the inner temple courts. So you have the temple and you have these courtyards. The three inner temple courts are only for Jews and those who have been circumcised. And then there's an outer court. It's called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where they could be, as close as they could get to the temple. So it's very possible, but we don't know if it's clear from the text, that they are in the outer temple courts. Jesus was doing some teaching in the temple courts. But they can't get to him, and they wish to see him. Whatever the case, we, we don't know for sure. They can't get to Jesus, so they go to Philip. And they say, we wish to see Jesus. And here's what's peculiar about this story. We don't know if they actually see Jesus. That's, the text doesn't tell us. Like it, it doesn't say that he met with them. It's possible that he did. It's possible that he didn't. But in John's gospel, that's not what he's trying to focus on here. He's not focusing on their meeting. He is focusing on their request right next to how Jesus responds to this request. And that's what's significant here. 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Now is the time. This anticipation has been building. My hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. John 2, 4, John 7, 30, John 8, 20. There's this theme of the hour has not yet come. Then Jesus triumphantly enters into the city as they chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, what is he going to do next? These Hellenists want to see Jesus. And in response to that, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does he mean by that? Well, he means glory by death. The hour has come to be glorified by death. It says in verse 24, truly, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour has come. For Jesus to die. And in just a few days, on Good Friday, he is going to the cross. Now, most of us aren't from the Midwest. So that grain reference may be lost on our ears. Because we don't grow grain down here. But it would not be lost on them what he is teaching there. That a seed from the grain is growing and it's alive. It is a part of the grain stalk, the sheep, and then it... When it falls off, it's lost its life source and it dies. But when it goes into the ground and the rains come, it will be reborn to something brand new. And Jesus is referring to that as a way of speaking about his death. And answering Gentile outsiders like that, you cannot miss the significance. Because what he is pointing to is the pinnacle work of redemption. That all of redemption history has been moving to this point Where his hour has come. The scriptures have been awaiting for the hour to come. All the way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And broke fellowship by trusting the word of the serpent. In that moment when the curse of sin is being told by God that sin is going to corrupt every aspect of creation. We get what theologians call the proto-evangelion. That's a fancy Latin way of saying the first declaration of the gospel. Where he says one day. One day the seed of Eve is going to come and he is going to crush crush the head of the serpent. That one day someone is coming in the line of Eve and he's going to crush the work of evil. And then later on in Genesis in chapter 22 as Abraham is being called, we see that God has chosen a specific people, a specific tribe. And he says, in your offspring shall all all the nations of the earth be blessed. That one day the seed of Eve is going to come through you, Abraham, and through you, this seed of redemption is going to bless the nations. And we've been in Exodus, we've been walking through the law, and we see that Israel was called to follow the law, but we know that they cannot follow the law. We know that they break commandments over and over and over again. And then even Moses prophesies in Deuteronomy 18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. There is this growing expectation that someone is going to come from amongst our people. The hour is going to come where this is going to get fixed. And at the right time, Jesus comes. And he fulfills the Old Testament law by obeying it perfectly. 
And then he heals the sick and he feeds the hungry. He performs miracles. He raises the dead. As we saw last week in the fourth commandment, he challenges the religious establishment and they're misrepresenting the heart of God. He's going to establish a new people. And then the time has come for him to die. And after this statement, in just a few days, he's going to be arrested. And he's going to be arrested and then he'll be shamed, and he'll be beaten, and he'll be flogged, he'll be mocked, and his flesh will be torn apart, and they will force a crown of thorns on his head, and they will put a wooden cross on his mangled back, and they will send him up the hill of Golgotha, where they will nail him to a cross, and they will raise him in shame, most likely naked and exposed, and he will slowly suffocate to death to atone for the sins of man. And to purchase a people for himself. And then, like a grain of wheat, he'll be placed in the earth in a borrowed man's tomb. And the seed of our redemption will be placed in the earth as we wait. As we wait for death to meet its conqueror. And then on the first Easter morning, he rises. And he defeats the power of death so that... Hellenists, so that outsiders, so that outcasts can finally have access to Christ. So that there might not be any barrier. They won't have to go to Philip. They won't have to go to anyone to have access to Jesus. Because through his death and his resurrection, they now have access to Christ. The hour has come. And you will get to experience life with God. Forever, you will get access to God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. But ultimately what we see here is when the text tells us, when Jesus says it remains alone, that if it dies it bears much fruit, that ultimately the fruit of his redemption is us. That's every outsider that did not know Christ who finally trusted in Christ, and that now that we bear the fruit of righteousness that he provides within us like that, that is the fruit of redemption. So that response to a bunch of Greek Hellenists who want to see Jesus, it previews the whole mission of God. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Our hero is tipping his hand to where this is going. That in just a few days, he's going to die on the cross so that every tribe and every nation, every tongue can experience God forever. Now, the cost of redemption is his life. It is believing in what he has done for us. Following that, Jesus gives a cost, a cost that we bring to the table. And the next two verses, these two costs that he's going to outline are unbelievably important. The first is your life, and the second is your service. So let's look at that first one in verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
What a provocative thing to say. What a powerful thing to challenge us in. I mean, a lot of times people think of Jesus and he's, they have this picture that he's just this wise sage who has children tugging at him and he's picking them up and swinging them around. And that is our God. That is Jesus. But that's not the only picture of our Jesus. He's a prophet. And he drops prophetic truth bombs like this that mess us up. He is absolutely attacking our approach to this life here on earth. And when he says, lose, and the original language in the Greek, lose, often means also destroy or ruin. The idea here. It's not just losing your life, but destroying your life, ruining your life. If you want to ruin your life, love it. Be about maximizing pleasure, having your best life now. Cling to this life, and you're ultimately going to lose what is truly important, life with God. If you love your life, you will lose it. You cannot have both. You cannot have Jesus and this life. Is a, uh, one of the uh, best scenes, and what I would argue is the best Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade. Which I know some of you might think that's controversial. We can have the argument about Raiders of the Last Ark and all that stuff, as long as you don't say the Crystal Skull movie, which was nowhere in the stratosphere of The Last Crusade. But in The Last Crusade, the very end, when they've been seeking the Holy Grail, this treasure, and in the end when they finally have it, and the whole tomb begins to shake and this earthquake happens. And it falls out of the hands of that lady. And the chasm divides the, the holy grail, this treasure, and her. And she falls. And then Indiana Jones grabs her. And she's, off the, and she's off, hanging off the cliff, about to fall into the abyss. But she sees that treasure. She sees that holy grail that means eternity. It means life. All, all the things that in this story it means. And she sees it, and she begins to reach for it. And he's like, no, take my hand. I can't hold you. can't hold you, and you grab this. Take my hand. And she can't help herself. She wants the treasure so bad. And then she slips through his hands and falls into the abyss and dies. And then the whole earthquake shakes it again, shakes, and then Indiana Jones falls, and he falls in the exact same situation. But this time, Sean Connery is there, his dad. And he grabs him by the hands. And Indiana Jones has the exact same temptation. He sees the Holy Grail. He's, it's within arm's reach. He's just, if I, he just tries to reach. He wants it. And then Sean Connery looks at Harrison Ford and he says, Indiana, let it go. Let it go. You're going to die if you do this. Don't do this. Take my hand. And he's the hero and he makes the right choice. But that's us, y'all, that we see this life and what it has to offer. And we think if, we, that if I cling to this life, I can get pleasure and joy we got one hand on Jesus and one hand on this life and thinking we can have both. And Jesus is saying, you can't have both. That if you try to cling to this life, you're going to lose it. You're going to ruin it. Don't do this. Ultimately, Jesus wants us for himself. And clinging to him is our only hope. You cannot have this life and everything that it offers in comparison to Christ who offers so much more. Jesus says, if you love this life, you're going to lose it. But if you want to save your life, he says you need to hate your life in this world. Try selling that on a t-shirt in the Etsy marketplace. Bedazzled. 
That's a provocative thing to say. You need to hate this life. Hate is a very strong word, and it's also a nuanced word. My, my children, when they were, uh, my oldest, when they were three and four, they would use the word hate. They'd hear us use it, and they would use it. We would say, don't say hate. Because three and four years old, they weren't ready for that word. You want them going to preschool saying, I hate you, to a kid that took their toys. Like, this is not, no, you're not ready for that word. But that put in their mind that this was a naughty word, like it was a bad word. So now they're a little bit older, and we've said hate, and they'll say, don't say hate, it's a bad word. And I say, well, it's not. I've had to explain to them, we've told you early on, this is a word that wasn't for you. But now you're getting older, and you're gaining a little bit of wisdom, and learning the English language, and... Now we're teaching them that hate actually is a biblical word. We're supposed to hate sin. We're supposed to hate evil. We're supposed to hate injustice. And I'm trying to teach that, but it's a, it's a nuanced word, and Jesus is clearly nuancing his use of the word hate here. And really, hate is in opposition to love here, and he's doing something with that word. Jesus is not literally saying, you need to hate this life. In the same way, like he's not saying you should hate your job and hate your wife your husband or your friends you should hate your kids you should hate your family you should hate everything you've got he's not saying it literally like that but while he's not using that word literally he certainly means it very seriously and how he's using hate here and the way that it's being used on opposite in the opposite of love is that you should so love christ that you should so love the things of God, love Jesus, love his people, love what is good, that your love in comparison to the world, that your approach would look like hatred of the world, indifference to the world. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, people whose priorities are right have such an attitude of love for the things of God that all interest in the affairs of this life appear by comparison as hatred. Let me read that again. People whose priorities are right have such an attitude of love for the things of God that all interest in the affairs of this life appear by comparison as hatred. That you would so love God and the things of God by comparison look like hatred. You know, a lot of folks don't know this. The restaurant that sells the most T-bone steaks in the world is Waffle House. It's Waffle House. Awful waffle, waho. They sell the most T-bone steaks. And you might think by that logic, if you've never had a steak, well, if they sell the most, they must be the best. And you go to Waffle House the first time, and you need a steak. And you'd be like, oh, this is what it means to have a steak. And you'd be so wrong. You'd be so utterly mistaken. You want to know a wonderful place to get a steak? Raz Bradley's house. Raz Bradley is one of our pastors, and he makes wonderful steaks. He makes this steak called picanha. That's the steak you get at a Brazilian steakhouse. It's just so good. He makes even, uh, it's called wagyu steaks, okay? It's like a fancy Japanese beef. And he makes these steaks, and they're so good. And y'all, there's one thing I love about Raz. He's so hospitable. He would love for every one of you to come to his house and have Wagyu steak. In fact, I think you should today, he's out there doing security for us, or, or whatever it's called, safety for us. I would love for you to go and ask him, I want to come to your house and have Wagyu beef. Make me this glorious steak, because once you put that in your mouth, 
You will experience what true steak is supposed to be. And you would look at Waffle House and go, I hate that. I don't want that. I'm never eating that again. Because you've actually experienced what ultimately is good. God wants to ruin your taste for this world. By his great love, he wants to ruin your taste for this world. He wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, Psalm 34. He wants you to taste of him and see that he's ultimately, as we say all the time, so much better than everything else because he is. What a prayer. What a prayer to pray. Lord, ruin my love for this world. Ruin it. Because I want you and I want you alone. Because what he offers, it is so much greater. We should invite God to ruin our love for this world. Jesus wants that for us. That we so deeply love God, the things of God, that our approach to this world would be, no, it's not even close. So that's the first thing. It costs your life and your approach to this life. And the second cost is your service. Your service. In verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. One of the problems of American Christianity is that faith and Christian faith is treated like a mere function of your life. That it's a social aspect of your life. As if that you could put on this Christian faith like a uniform on Sundays, right, a few times throughout the week, and exchange it for whatever setting you're in. That faith becomes a mere function, mere social aspect of your life, and not what it's supposed to be, the guiding compass of our life. That we're meant to be servants. And that service is displayed through following him. That we be followers of Christ who serve him. Like that, one of the, when I'm talking with people in the South about faith and I'm doing evangelism, most Christians in the South are going to answer the question, are you a Christian? They're going to say, yes. Most people are going to claim to be Christians in the South. But what I'm asking, what I'm looking for, what I'm seeking for in someone is not just identifying with Christ. Not, not talking about him as he's just like a part of their life or who they identify with. I'm looking for the language of a follower. I'm looking for the language of a servant. That Jesus, they, they've so loved him and so believed that he is good that it changes the way they live their life. That They seek to serve Christ. Do you? merely identify with Christ? Is he merely someone you can put on or put off given the social setting that you're in? Or are you a servant of Christ? Because don't miss this. He's saying this on the way to the cross. When he says, where I am, there will my servant be also. He's on his way to the cross as he says that. So this service for, for some is even unto death, which we, we in America are so insulated from that. We have brothers and sisters across the world who are being persecuted. And they take that literally that it may cost their life 
and serving Christ, there will my servant be also. But I fear that many Christians in America would not be willing to serve Christ if it meant even having an uncomfortable conversation with a coworker, let alone unto death. Now he's calling to a, to a deeper service. And I, f- I feel this, that the American part of me wants comfort. It, wants, it doesn't want suffering for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't want to serve in a way that would make me uncomfortable, but a prayer to grow in would be, Lord, where you are, there your servant will be also. What a prayer to pray. Where you are, God, is where I want to be. Are you willing to serve Christ and do whatever he tells you to do? That language of servant for us is difficult because we're so far removed from the New Testament world in the context of a servant class where the closest parallel I can think of is military service. If you're in the military, you belong to the military. And your commanding officer says, do something, you do it. You serve wherever he wants you to go. Are we willing to have that approach to God? That we'd serve him. At a minimum, that's going to be the things he tells us to do in the scriptures. At a minimum, that's going to be everything from work and prayer and the disciplines all the way down to where is the Holy Spirit leading you? Where is he leading you to serve? Where is God at that you need to be at in your service to him? I'm growing in as a Christian, not sidestepping the Holy Spirit and his nudging and his leading in my life because there are times where God says, I want you to do something, and I just go, well, uh, but, uh, uh, mm. what kind of qualifications do we have for that as opposed to just being someone say, okay, no, God, where you are is where I want to be. Where you want me to serve? Where do you want me to be? Are you willing to pray boldly and ask the Lord, where do you want me to be, Lord? Where do you want me to serve? What do you want me to be doing? And for some of you, that may be as simple as serving in Kid City or serving as a leader in training or a group leader. For some of you, that may be stepping into pastoral ministry or being a missionary and going to the ends of the earth. But here are the costs that he has for us. That he costs our life and it costs your service. And then don't miss what he says to follow that up with. He says, if you do this, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor you. Which means, if you look at this in the context of the rest of the New Testament that speaks like this, that it is good to be motivated to receive honor from God. But that's actually a godly motivation, which is weird for, for many of us. I know it's weird for me. It throws me off because like, shouldn't I have the, I don't know, the internal intrinsic value of just serving Christ? Is it, is it wrong to seek honor from Him as if in some way we're, we're robbing God of glory? It messes with because we're so, we, in our church, we so preach and live that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is, that, that is so much of who we are. And you need to hear very clearly, this isn't for your salvation. He's not, you're not doing these things unto be, to be saved. Safe, being saved by Jesus is by believing in what he has done alone. But once you are a Christian, This is for you. And what's being held out for you is in your service to Christ that you'll be honored. And you should desire that. In C.S. Lewis's uh, Weight of Glory essay, he talks about this. He talks about, he uses the phrase, I love it, he says, the undisguised pleasure in being praised. That we should have undisguised pleasure in being praised by God. And he compares us to a dog. I know some of you are like, 
I'm not a dog. In comparison to God, you're much worse. But C.S. Lewis, he talks about us like we're a dog. I have a dog. Her name is Piper. She's a big labradoodle, which some of you want to know. Yes, we did name her after John Piper. It's a pastoral nerd. That's what happened. But her name is Piper. And when I drive home and I pull up in the driveway, she hears my car pulling up, which is impressive because I drive a Prius and it's real quiet. And she, she hears it. She runs to the front of the house. She gets on the couch. She looks out the, out the window. She waits for me. And then when I open the door, she's standing in front of it. And she's so excited. She's got a full body waggle, just, just going for it. Just prancing. Her feet are prancing. She just wants to be praised. She has, she has this uh, undisguised pleasure in being praised. She seeks it. She wants it. She wants that type of praise and love and affirmation. We, we should have that approach to God. But in eternity, we should have this undisguised pleasure in being praised. It does not rob God of glory for him to honor you. I mean, think about the language of the parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents, what's the language that, that Jesus uses? The phrase that we long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Boy, oh boy, we should long for that type of honor. We should live our Christian lives longing for the day when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, where he bestows that type of honor upon us. And we don't know, we don't have great vivid pictures of what that is in the New Testament, of what type of honor that is, of the storing up riches in heaven that he speaks about. We don't have the most vivid pictures of that, but if Jesus says it's honor, we certainly should believe that. And that we should live our lives in light of that. Costs your life, and it costs your service. But boy, oh boy, you will be honored. I so appreciate this brief story in John's gospel that on his way to Good Friday and on his way to Calvary, a few, these Greek Hellenists, they just, they wish to see Jesus. And then we get this response that shows exactly what his work is for. We see what it's all about. That the hour has come where he will go to the cross for us because of his great love for us so that we might have our love for this life ruined by his great love and serve him into eternity. And at the end of the week, he takes all of our sin to the cross and he walks out of the grave and he makes a way for outsiders like you and me to experience our God forever. Many of you have said and expressed the same desires as these outsiders. I wish to see Jesus. I wish to see Jesus. I want to know him. I want to be with him. I long to, to see him. This is how. Let God ruin your love for this world. Let him ruin your love for this world. Serve him with all of your heart. So that you might be honored. That is the path that he's forging at Calvary as we head into Good Friday and we sing songs about the death of Jesus. This is what it is for. A people that he has purchased for himself that do not love the world but love him deeply and serve him into eternity. Matt's going to come up and we get to worship and we get to take the Lord's Supper. As we remember the good news of the gospel that on the night that he was betrayed, he took, he took bread and he took wine and he took the cup of the new covenant. He took the bread and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. He says, often as you 
eat this, we remember Jesus' death on the cross, that we take the cup, the cup of the new covenant, this is my blood that was shed for you, he says. That as often as you eat and drink this, we get to proclaim the death of Jesus until he returns. Christians, as you come to the table, you get to remember what happened on Good Friday and what Jesus did for us. And that the seed of redemption was placed in the earth. And that on Easter morn, he burst forth into life, making a way for us to experience Jesus into eternity. When he says, proclaim my death until I return, when he returns, all things are made new. And in that day, for those of us that have trusted in Jesus as our only hope and have laid down our lives to follow him and have served him, there's an honor that is coming that we can't quite understand, but it's very good. And we should aim our Christian lives for that day. There are some of you, there are some of you that have not actually had your love for this world ruined by God. You have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You have not believed in Him. You have not given up your life to Him. Your life is not in service to Him, and it's because you don't know Him. And I so deeply, I, we don't want you to come to this table. I wish for you to see Jesus. I want you to meet him. I want you to know him. I want you for the first time to lay down your life for him. I want you to pray a prayer that says, God, ruin my love for this world. I want you to experience the love that he poured out for us on the cross and say, I want you, Christ. Pray a prayer that says, ruin my love for this world so that I might live for you. So that you might one day experience the unmerited grace of his honor that he bestows on his people. So don't come to the table. Right now, come to Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us be so captivated by your sacrifice on the cross that we'd be so overwhelmed by how you were placed like a seed in the tomb That we be so overjoyed by the resurrection we get to celebrate one week from now. That we respond in faith. That if there's anyone here that does not know you, I pray that they'd wish to see you. And they would give their life to you. God, ruin their love for this world so that they might love you. God, there are so many of us who trust you, who follow you, that want one hand on this life and everything it has to offer and one hand on you. God, I pray that we cling to you. Ruin our love for this world over and over and over again. Help us die to ourselves so that we might live to you in service of you and worshiping you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.